goes. You know, you test these things beforehand, and you're never quite sure if they're going to work. Good morning. My name's Kelly Hewitt. I'm a pastor over in Middleton, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Madison. If you know anything about the Wisconsin, Madison is uh, the, the most liberal of the cities, and Middleton is what we like to call the, the conservative section. <sighs> There's about five of us. Glad to be able to be here today with you. Uh, Pastor Timmerman and I go way back, way, way back. Probably one of the longest people next to my wife that I actually know. It's getting scary. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today, to be gathered as your family in your house. Lord, there's things going on in our hearts and in our lives, things that distract us, things that are pulling on us, things that are weighing on our hearts and distracting. And Lord, we're asking you to give us moments today to spend in your word that we hear from you your amazing peace, peace that only you can grant. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. What are some of your top fears? I'm interactive, so I'm going to give you that warning, one. Warning two is, if you don't interact, I get to add time to my sermon. <laughs> and you thought Pastor Timmerman was long. What are some of your fears? Snakes, I heard. How is that one the one that always comes out? What else? Spiders. Those creepy crawlies. If you're from where I grew up, they have hourglasses on the backside. What else? Heights. Ooh, I don't like those either. We got a guy standing on top of a building. Oh no, heights. Shadows. We'll have to write that one. <laughs> Scared of shadows, fears of shadows, what else? Five minutes late. I thought that was just called normal. We got one more. Fire. Last fall, a college did a comprehensive survey of the country, and this is what they found. 74% of the country is afraid of their government. 61% of the population is afraid of polluted water, drinking polluted water. 70 or 57% afraid of not having enough money for the future. 57% people I love getting ill. 56% are afraid that people they love will die. 53% are afraid of their medical bills. If you ask the same questions to a group of teenagers of what are they most fearful of, this is anyone between the ages of 14 and 18, 
51% are afraid of talking to their parents. 51%. 40% are afraid of fitting in. 30 are 30% are afraid of being bullied on a daily basis. 43.3% are afraid of depression and or suicide. 66% are afraid of the future. And 75.5% are afraid of their academic achievement or lack thereof. It's a lot to be afraid of, isn't it? And here we thought spiders were bad. Why is fear such a powerful motivator? Do you know? Take a look at most TV ads. What are the ad purpose of those TV ads? Or social media ads? What is the purpose of the news station? Is the purpose of the news station to actually give you the news? Or is the purpose of the news station at this point to drive absolute terror into your life and then try to find a solution for you or just to get you terrified so you watch for the next five minutes? If I can get you scared enough, you will keep watching my show. If I can convince you of why you should be afraid of someone, I can get you to elect anybody I want you to elect. As long as I can convince you that they are going to solve what Pavlov would call your physiological needs, that lowest base of needs, your health, your wealth, and your security. Fear is one of the most powerful motivators of the humankind. It is also the most debilitating of emotions for humanity. It is in fear that fear drives out faith. It is in fear that all of a sudden we have this, set, this sense that I will fix it. In my midst of my fear, I don't want to acknowledge that I have fear. So instead of acknowledging I have fear, I find ways to self-medicate myself. So away from the fear, I get involved with things. I dive into work. I work 90 to 100 hours, not because my job actually needs me, but because I'm afraid of being home or dealing with stuff on the outside. I'm afraid that if I don't do well enough or I don't put in those 90 hours that maybe I won't be viewed as good enough. I dive into that swell of self-medication with my own true medications. Oh, I'll take this pill for that or this drink for that. It'll make me feel better. We have this concept of self-medicating because we don't know how to deal with fear. We don't know how to deal with anxiety. We don't know how to deal with worry. There's so many things we could worry about. So many things we can be anxious about. And so how do we handle those things? And we like to think we're living in a unique time in a unique place, but we're not. And so as we're going through this spiritual boot camp, this idea of how do we prepare our person, our personal faith life for being resilient, that is the purpose of boot camp, right? Have any of you actually gone through boot camp? A couple of you? A couple of you have gone through boot camp a little later than others. The purpose of boot camp is to absolutely tear you down to your base core and then to rebuild you with the, the needed building blocks 
in order for you to actually endure what they know is going to be coming, even though at the time you have no understanding how what you're in the process of doing is going to actually help you. You don't understand how the physical work, the, the extreme labor, the extreme schedule is going to help you until you end up having to face something that you've never understood. And for once, you finally go, that sergeant was right. But the whole point of boot camp was sometimes you had to clear away a whole lot of what you had as preconceived notions. What you had to understand and what you thought was right. You had to actually learn to submit to somebody else's understanding. You had to learn that somebody might actually know more than you. Go figure. That's what God does in his word with us. Our sinful nature just weighs us down with all this stuff that we think we know. And fear is one of them. This base nature that gets, gets us and starts welling within us and then clogs out our ability to see our Savior. I want you to see this storm on this picture. This was captured, I believe, in Kansas right before an EF2 hit ground. Um, one of my members is a meteorologist and storm chaser. And the picture that you see in Psalm 46 is the picture that you see on the screen. So often you see this image of be still and you have this wonderful little lake cottage with this nice beautiful sunset and it's easy to be still. Or you have this nice snowy picture, but at this point I don't know that that's going to motivate anybody to be still. <sighs> but that passage as we're about to dig into was written at a time when all hell was breaking loose, literally, for the Israelites. We dig into Psalm 46. You got some notes there in your bulletin. Psalm 46, for the director of music, sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. Guess what? We don't know what two-thirds of this means. We like to say we do, but we have no clue. We know the director of music. That would be the worship director. Some churches have them, some churches don't. Pretty simple. According to Alamoth, how many of you know what an Alamoth is? Neither do I. It must be a song, though. The tune is Alamoth. We don't know. It's been lost. And that's okay. But what is important is, what do you know about the sons of Korah? What do you know about Korah? We're going to play some Bible history here. Who's Korah? This is the guy who literally was swallowed by the earth. He, Datham, and Abiram had led a rebellion against Moses, and God called it out, and their entire house fell into the ground, the ground opened up, swallowed them up, and closed back over, over the top of them for rebelling against God, rebelling against God's leader. Some of you think you have bad family history. Some of you think, I, can, I'm not, I don't have the right family name. If you only knew what was in my past, you wouldn't want to be friends with me. You don't get much more graphic than having your grandfather 200, 300, 400 years ago be swallowed by the earth because God was angry at him. That was this family's lineage's name. That would be having like the last name of Benedict Arnold today. But these men, if you read through 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, were now pillars of faith life. Pillars to the point that King David appointed them head of all worship for Israel. These were men who did not let their past dominate who their identity was going forward. They understood grandpa made a mistake. And they dedicated their lives to worshiping and glorifying God. 
And King David appointed them to be the royal musicians. Talk about a God of peace in the midst of a storm. God is our refuge and strength, ever-present help in trouble. We start with that first line, God is our refuge. What is a refuge? Place of shelter. I went into church this week, um, and, and they still had on the outside of the building designated fallout shelter. Some of you remember those? Kids, you'll see it in a history book someday. It seriously, and, and it was on the side, and I'm like, huh, I haven't seen that in a long time. Typically, a refuge is a physical location. For tornadoes, you go to your basement. If you're at a school, you go to the bathrooms or an interior wall. It's a place. Except for in this psalm. Take a look at it. What's the refuge? God says, I am your refuge. I am the one who is going to protect you. If you are fans of Lord of the Rings, it's Helm's Deep, this fortified location that cannot be penetrated, supposedly. But God says, I can't be penetrated. I am your refuge. Here's the next one he says. If the clicker will work. I am your strength. God is our refuge and strength. He knows that when a storm comes, when a storm hits your life, be it a family diagnosis be it something coming out about a family member, a lifestyle, be it a job loss, be it some uncertainty with kids, be it uncertainty with health. There gets that point where you're, Lord, I don't know, I, don't, I just can't go on. And he says, oh good, you finally decided to stop being your own strength. You start, stop trying to think that you're strong enough to handle everything on your own. Because he says, in the midst of the storm, it isn't about how strong you are, it's how strong I am for you. He opens this psalm, which is an entire psalm about how do you handle fear, anxiety, worry, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of massive things coming down upon you. And his first comment is, I'm your refuge. Second comment is, I am your strength. Third comment, I love this. I hate it in the English, I love it in the Hebrew. An ever-present help in trouble. Oh, that just sounds so great for song. The Hebrew, help in distresses, much found. Help in distresses, much found. It's this imperative. There is help much in distress. He puts the word, out or, word order all out of order to emphasize this fact that what happens when you're in the middle of a fear? What happens when you're in the middle of, of a storm? One of the first things that comes about is this picture of why, God, have you allowed this? God, why haven't you fixed this? God, why are you allowing my family member to endure this right now? God, why are you allowing flooding to wipe out entire towns? How can you be help in present trouble? I don't see you stopping the rivers, God. How many of you have seen the pictures out of Nebraska? I've seen a few out of Michigan. Wisconsin, my own town, was, went from a one-foot river to 15 feet in a matter of 11 hours. Yeah. Swelled through, carried off some things. Last year we had 29 inch, or 19 inches of rain. Downtown was six feet under. Everybody asking, God, where are you? God, where are you in the midst of this trouble? And he says, no, I'm right here, folks. I haven't left you. 
I'm still in the midst of this. I am still controlling this. I'm still taking care of you. Remember, I'm your refuge, I'm your strength, and I, I am help here. I'm here now. My job is not to stop the storm. This is, goes back to your boot camp basics. Boot camp basics, we have this concept, God, you must stop the storm for you to truly be God. God says, no, I'm, my job is not to stop the storm. My job is to give you peace in the midst of the storm. And that's what sets Christianity apart from the rest. Is God says, I'm going to give you the ability to withstand the storm. He moves on. Therefore, I will not fear. How do I not fear? The ability for me to not fear does not come from me. It comes because God has said, oh, too many clicks, that he is my refuge, my strength, and my help in distress is much found. The only way that I can move forward and say I will not fear is not because I have such a strong faith life. There's this misnomer among Christians that if only I had a stronger faith, I would not have fears. There's this misnomer that if only I had a strong enough faith, I wouldn't have to deal with this, this overwhelming sense of anxiety every day of my life. That's called the sinful nature that's still working hard. And, and Paul says we're never going to get rid of that. Christ conquers it, and he gives us this peace in the midst of it. But he says this is how you find peace. He says, I will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, how fitting as all of these floods are taking place around the nation right now. How fitting. The waters are going to roar and foam. And I'm still God. Mudslides are taking place out in California. And I'm still God. Earthquakes are happening all over the globe. And I'm still God. He says, don't fear in the midst of those. Because I've told you I am your refuge. I am your strength. I am your help in distress as much found. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. Hebrew, they tend to put the most important line right in the middle of the psalm. The earth melts is in the middle of Psalm 46. Everything that is culture of today is all about me. I will trust my politicians. I will trust my ability. I will trust my bank account. I will trust my friends. I will trust my family. It's all about me. And he says that's all going to melt. And when it does, the only thing left is going to be your refuge, your strength, and your help in distress is much found, which is the one who said, I am going to go to the cross for you. It's the one who says, I'm going to walk out of heaven, take on human frailty, walk this earth every way just as you have, deal with every fear and pain and grief and sorrow as you deal with it, except for I'm going to do it without sin. So that you have hope. So that you know you have a God who is not one who sits above and does not understand. But you have one who has walked through it with you. The Lord Almighty is with us. I love this picture. One of the things that depression, anxiety, and fear have that they grip us with. Is this picture that God's not big enough to handle my problems. That God can't possibly, or, or he's so big that he can't be disturbed with what's going on. The Lord of hosts is technically, whenever you see an NIV 84, if that's what you're using, if you see that Lord Almighty, the Hebrew there is Lord of angel armies. Lord of hosts. Every time that's used, it's to give you this picture that God is this, 
is not just someone who's removed and someone who has inability to, to actually understand what's going on, but, this, but God who has myriad of myriad, thousands upon hundreds of thousands of armies at his disposal to protect and to care for you. One of my favorite accounts is Elisha in 2 Kings. He is running from the kings of Aram who have now surrounded them. And they wake up in the morning and it, there's hundreds of thousands of Arameans surrounding them. And his servant wakes up and he walks out and, and they've been running and they've been avoiding them for weeks on end. And finally, the Arameans have caught up with them. And the, slave, and the slave who is with Elisha opens the tent door flap that morning and says, Master, we're toast. Master, they got us. And Elisha, in a wonderfully calm voice, Lord, open his eyes. And he looked, and on the hills surrounding the Arameans, hundreds of thousands of angel armies were waiting. And instead of praying for them to be annihilated, Elisha said, would you blind them? And they were blinded, and he walked right through. So often we put God in our box of what he's capable of because we think of what we're capable of, and God must just be one level above us, so he can only do one level above what we can think. And here in Psalm 46, he's walking us through. God is the God of angel armies. You want to think about whether he can protect you, whether he can defend you. He says, I got angel armies at my disposal to defend, protect, and strengthen you. Come and see the works of the Lord. Have you ever pondered as you read through the Old Testament why they always recount Exodus? He recounts what happens with the Exodus, all of the plagues. Read Psalm 136 sometime. It's this really, really long psalm that recounts all of their history in, in basically one psalm. Why? Because so often when we put God in our box, we forget what he is capable of. And he says, recount, come and see what I've done. Come and see how I've delivered my people. I want you to take a few moments. That's why we go through the season of Lent. We pause as we walk through the season of Lent to see our Savior's passion, not just to get this horrible guilt feeling and go, man, I must be a real, I, I have to feel really guilty before I can get to Easter. That's not why we do Lent. We do Lent so we can come and see what the Lord has done. We come and see what our Savior has been through so that we know that he understands what's going on in our lives and that he went through all that so we can know that God is not punishing us. Because so often part of fear and anxiety and worry is the sense that God says, that, that our sinful nature is telling us, you did something wrong and God is punishing you. No, we walk through lunch so we can see, no, God punished Jesus for us. God's not angry with us. God loves us. He sent his son to die and his son rose, which means God gives you that resurrection, gives you that hope, gives you life. He's not going to punish you for that. No, he already punished his son. He says, come and see what I've done. See what kind of God I am. See if I'm a God who loves you who's caring for you. See if I'm a God who's your refuge, your strength, and your help in distress is much found. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the shields with fire. We could go in, this is one of my favorite pictures. It's the picture of I'm going to burn it all and even the caissons so you can't even bring the war equipment back. That's how far it's going to be done. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So often we, we surround ourselves with our fears. 
And while they may be things we don't have to deal with on a daily basis, some of them, if you go back to that list I read, are ones that people do feel on a daily basis. Fear of government, fear of medical, fear of enough money. And when we get those things focused and surrounded by us, we no longer have the ability to be still and know that God, know that I am God. We tend to say, I have to fix this myself. The question is, how do I be still? What does being still look like? If you read through most of Scripture, you're going to find out being still is this picture of waiting on God. So often, if you remember, every time a patriarch or a follower of Christ thinks that they have an idea of how to fix something, and they try to fix it their way, what happens when we try to fix things our way? What generally happens? It doesn't work. You know, Abraham tried to have a kid by his handmaiden because God wasn't working fast enough. Out of that comes pretty much every issue we're still having in the Middle East as Ishmael and Isaac are still fighting. Right? Every time we try to come up with our own solution, it ends up putting us in a bad place. God says, no, be still, wait on me. Let me be your refuge. Let me be your fortress. Let me be your help in distress as much found. Come and see what I have already done. If you are sitting in the midst of fear, if you're sitting in the midst of anxiety, spend some time going back through and seeing what God has all done and recounting, hey, what has God done in my life? Let me start recounting how I shouldn't be here. How many stupid moves I've made that he's interacted on my behalf. Can't tell you how many times I've spun out both on dry and snowy weather. There's times and time again. He says, be still. Know that I am God. Sometimes, though, we need some help with that. Sometimes we get too focused on our fears. We get focused on the storm. We missed one there. When we really need to sit and hear, God is my refuge and strength, my ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Be still and know that I am God. Never once does he promise to stop the storm. In the two actual storms of Jesus' ministry, the one where he is asleep in the boat and the one where he walks out to his disciples on the boat, both times, he asks them the question about fear before he stops the storm. His point is not that I am God, so I will stop your storm. His point is, I came to die for you, to forgive you, so that you can have peace in the midst of that storm. That you may glorify me in the midst of that storm. That you know, may know what it is to have actual peace in the midst of storms. Because he loves you. Because he's died for you. Because he said, I'm coming back for you. Whether it was in this font or one like it, waters of baptism washed over you. He declared you his own. 
and he is more fierce than any mama bear, than any helicopter mom. He is God. And he sent his son to die so that you may be rescued, that you no way know what it is to be still. On your way out today, some of you are going to need this. Some of you are going to need this on a daily basis because you are sitting in the midst of one of those storms. Some of you have a friend right now who's in the midst of one of those storms, and they're asking you the question, how do I endure? How do I make it through this? I encourage you to take one, take two. Put it in a place where you're dealing with fear, and you can have this as a reminder to be still and to wait on God, to be still and know that he is God. To be still and to hear of your Father's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing gift that you give, this gift of grace, this gift of your peace in the midst of life. Grant us that peace. Lord, for those who are dealing with storms in their lives today, we ask you to give them your peace, to use your word to bring peace into their hearts and into their lives. Allow them to sit and to be still with you, be in your word, to hear from you, to hand off their fear, their anxiety, their worry to you, and have people around them who can encourage them, to remind them of your love and your grace, that you are their refuge, their strength, and their help in distress is much found. Lord, for those of us who are needing that, Lord, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit and to grant it. For those of us who are doing well right now, help us to be the ones who come alongside others who are able to share this with those who are currently sitting in storms. Lord, it is an amazing gift that you give that is your son. We thank you for his love. We thank you for 